this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i'm ji sampath your host for today's episode waterlogged streets cars being swept away and people dying in floods is something we associate with developing countries but over the past fortnight some of the world's richest and technologically most advanced countries have been devastated by flash floods nearly 200 people have died in floods in germany and belgium there have been similar reports of flood damage and devastation from hinan province in china from london and of course maharashtra in india where it's almost an annual feature do these geographically disparate natural disasters have something in common are they all linked to climate change and if they are what are our options in terms of mitigation measures to get some answers to these questions we speak with g anantakrishnan senior associate editor with the hindu anand welcome to in focus thanks sampath thanks for having me Anand it is generally assumed that it is the poorer countries especially those in the tropical zones such as India and Bangladesh which are in the front line of a climate emergency but this month we have seen extreme rains and heavy flooding in places like Germany London and China so do you think there's a shift happening where people are beginning to now slowly realize that even the richer nations are equally vulnerable to extreme weather events when you look at what's happened in recent times what we find is that you know there have been anomalies of different kinds for instance we had uh, severe temperature anomalies around the world uh, you had in the western us parts of europe western asia and practically coinciding with that or following immediately uh, we had these uh, you know devastating floods in several places like you mentioned uh, in europe and uh, in china and in india i i think well, what we should actually have in mind is that uh, these are not possibly the worst floods that have happened because uh one finds that there there were more people who died let's say a few decades ago in germany in flooding so this is not by far the worst flood but what we are finding is that the frequency of these events they, they seem to be uh increasing so uh, we found that uh, this year uh, the uh, the the event which actually triggered the flooding in parts of germany and belgium uh is an intense storm which du- dumped some 15 cm of rain in uh, one day and uh you know swelled the streams and the rivers and uh resulted in the kind of devastation that you described so and there's been heavy loss of life this year as well as as i mentioned you know sometime in the past uh this time i think it's uh, so far they know about 200 plus people have died mostly in germany and uh, in belgium so uh, this time the focus is that uh, you know what what is relevant is to notice that uh, people have uh, found that they have been neglecting perhaps part of their geography in europe which is the smaller streams and tributaries of big rivers that they did not uh, you know uh, attend to so uh, this possibly has led to unexpected kind of damage from the floods so the big rivers have still been able to carry the waters but the streams suddenly swelled and passed through very built up areas and caused the kind of damage and havoc that we saw so and also uh, in uh, europe for instance uh, the frequency of floods 
uh, we see from the data that they have increased. So there is one estimate which is sponsored by the German insurance industry, which indicates that extreme flooding uh, is now occurring twice as frequently as in the past. So they've given the example of the Danube, where they think that uh, floods uh, become a feature once in 25 years from 50 years. While we talk of uh, how the floods have affected some countries, we also need to look at the same Western European geography where uh, the Netherlands has been less affected. So it is a country that has learned to live with uh, its peculiar uh, situation of most of the country being below sea level. And so they have a very well-developed system of handling water. Uh, whenever it rains, they have to get the water out of the you know useful uh, geography into the sea. So uh, uh, to protect the people and agriculture and you know their other economic activities. So Netherlands has uh, this policy called Room for the River, which uh, has helped that country manage this year's floods, despite the fact that it was uh, affected by uh, the same kind of uh, rainfall and water that passed through, uh, you know, at least, you know, one big river, the Meuse, that we saw. So finally, I think uh, in terms of uh, preparation for uh, these kind of events, I think uh, the focus now is on whether... Uh, the warning systems that have been created, very extensive real-time warning systems that were created in European countries are actually helping people stay away from devastating floods. So uh, did people react to the warnings uh, appropriately? Did they, did they, could they have moved away quickly enough? These are the questions that uh, you know, they are uh, looking at now in Europe. So one of the factors which... Uh, uh, is going to uh, determine, uh, you know, the governmental focus is the frequency and large-scale economic devastation that's happening from the floods. So you have, uh, on the one hand, the distressing loss of life, and on the other, uh, you know, billions of dollars or euros of losses, economic losses, which uh, countries cannot uh, easily sustain if it becomes, if it happens too often. So that's where, uh, you know, the present system is. And if you see uh, China, uh, you know, closer to us, and we saw that they had 200 millimeters of rainfall in just one hour in this place called Zhengzhou. And it has, it is apparently a sort of uh, historical records have been smashed with the kind of rainfall we saw. So in one hour, that is between four and five in the evening, they got a third of the uh, total rainfall for the day. The 200 millimeters was in just one hour. So it is impossible for, uh, you know, built up areas uh, to handle this kind of uh, rainfall where, where the water has no place to go. So this is the, uh, you know, situation so far the extreme weather is concerned. Most of it is attributed to, uh, you know, changes in climate. Some of the impacts are because we didn't anticipate uh, what happened. But definitely uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem with, uh, you know, what our activities are doing to the climate. Okay, so uh, one thing is clear, which is that uh, the frequency of extreme weather events have uh, increased. And uh, the other thing is, uh, our infrastructure is not uh, quite e equipped to handle the, the kind of consequences of the shift. Now, coming to the actual, uh, you know, the weather mechanics of it. So, we all know that the increase in temperature is related to what is happening. But how exactly does it work? Like, for example, there have been some reports, some journal articles which say that uh, warmer air is able to carry more moisture and therefore uh, compared to the past a given event of rain would lead to an unloading of a greater volume of water 
which leads to uh, mass spreading. And in the case of Europe, in the last month, for example, people have said this: this, this these these uh, flash floods were caused by uh, slow-moving storms, you know, which tend to linger. They don't really move as fast as one might expect. They tend to linger. So, how do the mechanics of climate change work in these kinds of events? Yeah. So, like you say, uh, there has been a focus on uh, slow-moving weather systems, you know, being the root cause of, uh, you know, the kind of havoc that we see. So, uh, I, I think uh, there is a lot of discussion about the warming of the Arctic, which is uh, probably what is causing this. So, the, the warming of the Arctic is supposed to be uh, slowing the uh, high-level winds, like the jet stream. And uh, this phenomenon, phenomenon has been linked to, you know, devastating heat waves. In Russia and floods in Pakistan. So there is there seems to be some kind of scientific uh, consensus, uh, you know, going towards this idea that uh, this is what is happening. The main reason apparently is that the temperature difference between the poles and the tropics is reducing. So this is weakening the upper level winds in the autumn, and uh, which is creating short duration rainfall extremes. So uh, this, as you said, has uh, has uh, you know had some scientific kind of uh, backing and uh, has been published uh, in journals. So which argue that the storms producing intense rain across Europe might be uh, might move slower with climate change in the future, increasing the duration of long exposure of these extremes. So one result suggests that slow-moving storms may be 14 times more frequent across the land by the turn of the century, that is the next century, end of the century. So, uh, definitely a slow-moving storm uh, would dump more water uh, over land and uh, the uh, warming of the Arctic may be slowing a key weather system, which is the jet stream and uh, creating, apparently the whole of the climate is uh, crucially dependent on the jet stream. So, if this is the impact from uh, that, then, uh, you know, you are going to uh, experience this much more often, I guess. Okay. So, speaking of slow-moving storms and, you know, how they tend to dump more water uh, per extreme weather event, are the floods in Europe and China comparable to the ones we have been witnessing in recent years in India, in places such as in Kerala, in Bihar, the Assam floods, uh, and the Maharashtra ones? Are they comparable in terms of uh, climate change-induced events? So, this year, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, in recent years, not just this year, so Kerala had uh, very high uh, rainfall in 2018. Uh, Uttarakhand uh, has had, uh, you know, again, uh, heavy rain this year. So, there, if you see in absolute terms, uh, it's quite comparable. But uh, I would I would think that, uh, you know, our uh, subcontinent is traditionally, you know, some it's a place where you have uh, a very strong monsoonal system which uh, takes place across several months. So, uh, we traditionally get, uh, you know, peaks of rain. But uh, in terms of the concentration of rainfall over a very short period of time, yes, I would imagine that it's comparable. So, if you take uh, two instances this year, in uh, July, in June, actually, uh, you find that uh, two centers in Uttarakhand, they got about 99 centimeters and 62 centimeters. So, this is, uh, you know, the kind of rainfall that you have seen, uh, you know, concentrated rainfall that you have seen in some other places. Uh, this year, our uh, monsoon so far has been uh, higher than 
normal uh, on average. So you find that, uh, you know, uh, heavy rainfall is experienced in parts of Maharashtra, 60% excess in suburban Mumbai, Ratnagiri. So uh, in terms of the volumes, I think that, uh, you know, we traditionally might expect a lot of water, but the concentration of rainfall and, uh, you know, sudden bursts which uh, trigger flooding, uh, they are indeed comparable. I would, I would imagine, yes. Okay, so you're saying, in other words, that we've been getting the kind of uh, volume which we traditionally get every year, but the but the receipt of that volume is concentrated in a much shorter uh, number of days or much shorter concentrated bursts. It, yeah, because of the unpredictability, uh, thanks to changing weather systems, most likely driven by climate change, you find that suddenly there is a, you know intense rainfall over a short period of time, which results in flooding. So, which which we saw in Kerala as well, you know, between a certain period, uh, you found found that uh, you know in 2018 in August, a very short period produced a heavy rainfall in middle August. So that led to a lot of flooding, and uh, even earlier prior to that uh, in uh, July you had uh, you know very high rains, uh, which uh, had actually led to the reservoirs being filled up, and in August you had sudden peaking towards the middle of August between the first week and the middle. And you found the uh, government had to release a lot of water, and that resulted in uh, you know the 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 floods that become so memorable uh, you know you know history. Right. So the the floods in China, for instance, they yielded a lot of disturbing images of people getting trapped uh, in flooded subways and metro stations. So are heavily populated cities somehow more vulnerable to extreme weather events than uh, thin, comparatively thinly populated rural areas? It's. I mean, one can imagine that uh, because of the concentration of both population and uh, you know buildings and urban infrastructure, which uh, comes in the way of uh, free flow of water, flooding in cities will indeed be uh, exacerbated. You know that uh, definitely uh, by these factors. So heavy rainfall gets impounded uh, in built-up spaces, and uh, it has uh, less areas to flow into uh, than in. A sparsely populated area, which is, of course, tautological. One might imagine that to be the case. But having said that, I think uh, the impact on cities is far greater because uh, now, because uh, we have lost our, uh, you know, river systems, you know, streams, uh, lakes, and other wetlands to various factors, encroachments, both legal and illegal, and uh, you know, building over. So, uh, classic case being Mumbai, we have seen that, uh, you know, in 2005 and uh, recently, 2005 was, of course, uh, really the extreme. So, we saw almost endless rain, uh, you know, since afternoon into late evening. So, that uh, that happened there and the havoc, because the water was particularly impounded as the main water course in Bombay, the Mitti River, uh, you know, was, there had no way to fl- for the water to flow through it. And uh, if you take uh, Chennai, uh, we have built our uh, one of the railway lines, the overhead railway line, uh, you know, along the Buckingham Canal. So uh, you you have all the pillars built on the bed of that river. It takes up a lot of space, and the water is obstructed. So we have uh, actually willingly and you know very short-sighted in a short-sighted manner, we have gone ahead and uh, obstructed the places where water should have naturally had the freedom to flow, which is not pro- possible now. And if you take uh, one other example I can think of is Tamil Nadu and, uh, you know, perhaps elsewhere, there are hundreds of lakes, uh, which are suburban lakes, 
around uh, major cities in this case chennai northern tamil nadu has uh, a tradition of having large lakes but these uh, have disappeared over the last let's say 3 or 4 decades so uh, naturally uh, you know people have built houses on uh, virtually on these lake beds and in their uh, you know uh, flow areas so uh, where they meet the sea and uh, naturally when it starts flooding you have uh, no escape and the water has nowhere to get uh, you know sequestered so you have uh, a problem which uh, the government uh, you know government successive governments have not paid attention to so not surprisingly you know with the concentration of activity cities are uh, you know major contributors to uh, you know the problem uh, the people have uh, you know this is these are engines of economic activity but at the same time we have not cared for uh, very natural processes which uh, take place every year now uh, on the other hand cities are also major contributors of climate change for instance we have a large base of vehicles and uh, we have uh, thus you know high carbon emissions we have plenty of buildings so the buildings create uh, you know the heat island and convection so these are phenomena which uh, are entirely concentrated around built structures which get heated up in very hot on very hot days and uh, they send up warm air into the uh, upper reaches and these warm these this warm air actually uh, form clouds which then produce thunderstorms so basically uh, you have various factors you you contribute carbon emissions which get recirculated around the world and then lead to climate change which affects everybody and locally you have heat island and convection which leads to sudden downpour within the city itself so uh, cities are you know that way you have uh, peculiar problems you know we have to address these things with a policy which uh, looks at producing uh, you know solutions like we have to create new areas where water can flow so if you have lost earlier ones then you create new ones you create wetlands lakes you allow channels which will take the water away to the sea if you are on the coast and uh, so i mean it, the cities are uh, you know very good places where people uh, you know develop so much we have economy culture you know everything happens there but at the same time we should we should be wise enough not to aggravate our own problems uh, which are uh, you know which we are witnessing over time right so you you mentioned about you know creating channels for the water to flow uh, as one of the measures cities could consider and uh, you know try and frame policies that allow uh, uh, allow for you know mitigation measures to take place now some countries are already thinking of uh, upgrading their urban infrastructure by climate proofing it as they call it what does it exactly mean to climate proof a city and is it affordable for countries like india i think uh, the affordability is not an issue at all uh, as i would see it because you have uh, very very low cost elegant solutions which uh, actually require only political will and support from the public uh there are there is uh, much to be gained from an approach like this if you take uh, heat stress and uh, you know rainfall extremes let's take heat stress first uh, you know we have the advocacy for green roofs uh, we have ad- advocacy for uh, you know uh, creating green zones within cities which will influence the microclimate and we can uh, like if you take the example of uh, holland again the uh, being a country which uh, faces a problem with uh, water always because of its low lying nature uh, you you have actually within cities take uh, rotterdam for instance they have places which are dual purpose so during the summer when there's uh, no problem they become play areas 
uh, actually there are uh, basketball courts and things like that they are well paved etc and uh, you know people use them to relax to play games and so on large spaces and uh, when it is uh, you know monsoon time or when there is ra- heavy rain you suddenly find that these places start accumulating the water there's a well ordered system by which the city's water flows into such places and uh, you know they they ensure that they have less of a problem in dealing with it because otherwise the city is uh, will become unlivable in that context and increasingly in our case also i think uh, we are in the same situation where we can uh, we have to expect uh, you know concentrated heavy rainfall flows and floods therefore we need to think of creating uh, you know as part of climate proofing artificial uh, lakes and you know re- reclaim uh, those uh, lost wetlands which are still you know not uh, which, which are still not completely lost in that sense so at least the wetland is available maybe silted up maybe partly encroached so we need to uh, you know wi- uh, deepen them widen them and uh, make them uh, you know receptacles for uh, rainwater which has also an effect like it's been proved by uh, research that if you orient the uh, water bodies uh, you know these water bodies properly in the direction of wind flow then you find actually that the uh, stored water has a cooling effect on the rest of the built up area so this also is uh, you know a, a plus and then you have uh, if you have a green green belt or you know garden kind of approach where urban gardens are uh, actively encouraged then they cool off the uh, you know local areas so here uh, one of the things even even in europe now, for instance they are talking of planting deciduous trees i don't know how good an idea that is uh, if those trees are not native to those geographies but they are talking of planting trees which have very big crowns the uh, canopy cover is so good that uh, you actually end up cooling off the city so this is something that's very native wisdom for us we know that for ages and so we just need to rediscover that and uh, go back to that so these are these are some of the low cost uh, you know nat- nature oriented kind of uh, buildings uh, nature oriented kind of uh, design examples which i think uh, you know bi- you know biophilic design you build your uh, cities and design your cities expand them aligned with natural processes which will give you some kind of a shield against uh, the kind of uh, problems that we are going to face with uh, climate change so this might be uh, you know climate proofing the other thing is of course like we discussed earlier about the contribution uh, of uh, you know sources of carbon emissions like transport for instance uh, i don't think uh, the indian system is yet uh, happy to shift away from let's say motorized fossil fuel powered vehicles to uh, uh, non motorized vehicles and uh, you know electric vehicles so all of us are not going to be able to afford uh, electric vehicles to my imagination so there are many people in this country who would like to have uh, you know a clean public transport the ability to the ability and the space to use bicycles uh, in cities so i think uh, a redesign of uh, you know our uh, urban systems to provide for lower emissions at the same time without affecting the productivity of uh, the cities is uh, you know something that we have to think about so which will also be an aspect of future uh, you know mitigation of uh, climate effects i would imagine so on the one hand climate proofing through active measures and through uh, structural uh, changes which will reduce the emissions over time so biophilic design is some is an interesting concept uh, you spoken about now many of these measures you uh, you mentioned could uh, possibly be uh, 
thought of and executed at the local level or the or the national level but climate change unfortunately is not something uh, that can be addressed entirely at the local or national level and it's an international uh, phenomenon so where uh, is the world right now in terms of meeting uh, emission targets uh, to halt or possibly reverse climate change i think this is the most difficult question despite having a paris agreement in hand and uh, you know so hopeful everybody was uh, quite convinced that that is going to help us uh, overcome this uh, very very uh, uh, what can i say it's a defining kind of uh, challenge for humanity uh, it's the only challenge big challenge that we really have to overcome if we want a long term future for all of us and for future generations uh, i think uh, here uh, the prop- the point is that all the pledges under the uh, paris pact which is the one we are pursuing yeah they don't really uh, add up to uh, the kind of goals that we have the national pledges will not get us to either 1.5 degrees or to 2 degrees maybe uh, the current uh, you know very bleak scenarios talk of uh, between 3 and 4 degrees by the end of the century so which would uh, you know fundamentally alter the kind of uh, uh, weather systems and the planet that we have so uh, uh, so we have to look at uh, the kind of carbon budget we have the emissions budget what remains so there the uh, un's uh, estimate is that we have between 420 gigatons of co2 and 580 so which has to be sort of split up among all the countries and those who have had uh, a go at uh, development using fossil fuels they'll have to sacrifice the most and uh, the others will have to do it uh, slower uh, they have more room uh that's the philosophy that uh, you know basically underpins the global understanding of the un framework convention but uh, whether this is going to happen is uh, entirely another question because you find that many of the uh, uh, world leaders today are very conservative about uh, this uh, donald trump of course is off the scene uh, he pulled the us out of uh, the paris pact but he is now uh, uh, you know i mean he's gone and uh, of course uh, the uh, the successor uh, in the us joe biden is uh, you know interested i mean he has already got back into the paris pact and he wants to do a lot he has a huge plan on climate change electrification of uh, you know a lot of things mobility reducing the uh, uh, you know energy use in the us and he, i think the european union is even far ahead for uh, of other other places they have their own green deal and uh, they promise to do a lot of things but uh, the issue is that we we have two fundamental uh, barriers here one is of course the technologies that will actually reduce carbon emissions who has it and who will give it to whom and uh, whether they will give it at an affordable uh, sort of uh, arrangement in a, under an affordable arrangement or is it that they are going to uh, you know look at it as a bottleneck which uh, you know people will pay for so that is not going to help anyone because it's only going to prolong the problem so out of this uh, so many gigatons of carbon dioxide uh, you know we are claiming uh, a hefty share and uh, this whole concept of net zero whether you will uh, you know not uh, you will you will not effectively emit any more new uh, i mean you will have no new carbon emissions uh, from a certain point in time so whatever that point is whether it's mid century or earlier or uh, a little later so that net net zero concept is also proving to be uh, uh, very uh, controversial and uh, in that sense uh, you know divisive 
because many countries don't want to commit themselves to anything that uh, you know will prevent them from uh, achieving uh, rates of higher development so of course we, it's an open question what is development i mean is it something that is uh, high energy use through dirty fuels or is it something uh, you know which will uh, help us uh, uh, progress to a green future which is uh, you know more oriented towards health and uh, you know many indices which show that we are developed uh, in in a sense uh, we have uh, all the social uh, uh, systems in place which take care of people rather than uh, you know absolute money by which people can be uh, seen as developed so these these divergent sort of issues are there so i mean this is a very complex complex and complicated situation where uh, you know the 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 course of uh, the climate policy is dictated by uh, you know capital big capital so how they are ready how much they are ready to actually sacrifice and uh, uh, adopt new measures so there a lot of them are talking of course uh, you know solar power is big and everybody is talking about uh, moving towards solar and uh, many of the big corporations are also talking about it there's uh, there's a huge movement among young people uh, in the industrialized world uh, that you sh- no further investments should go into fossil fuel companies so these are all the factors which will determine uh, you know how much of emissions will go on now uh, talking of this uh, emissions uh, it's it's interesting that during 2020 during the covid pandemic the use of coal uh, you know reduced a lot and uh, so emissions uh, came down but uh, very recently after uh, you know the new year is in place the international energy agency is saying that 2021 is going to witness a huge demand for coal because uh, countries are again uh, you know firing up the engines so uh, whether this is going to uh, you know where this is going to take us by end of this year is it going to lead to a sudden spike in emissions which are actually gone down last year thanks to the virus so these are, these are open questions anand we are running out of time so i guess we'll have to stop there and uh, come back to these open ended questions maybe uh, sometime in the future thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this question uh, it was a pleasure talking to you thanks so much sampath in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon